The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. You're listening to Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Eat better, get healthy, and help animals. Welcome to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. In July of 1990, The Lancet published an article called The Lifestyle Heart Trial, detailing the work of cardiologist Dr. Dean Ornish working with advanced heart disease patients. It showed something previously believed impossible that coronary heart disease could be not just prevented, but reversed. The best-selling book that followed was called Dr. Dean Ornish's Program for Reversing Heart Disease, but the doctor himself had wanted the title to be Opening Your Heart, because (laughs) on so many levels, that's what happens. Welcome, everyone. I'm Victoria Moran, your host for the Main Street Vegan program, sponsored today by Main Street Vegan Academy, a magical six-day program in magical New York City, where you'll learn from some of the best and the brightest in the vegan and plant-based worlds, take fabulous field trips, and return as a certified vegan lifestyle coach and educator. So do check the program out at MainStreetVegan.net slash academy. Now, for those of you who have been around with us from the beginning, you know that we started doing this program way back in 2012. And I would say that for just about that long, people have been requesting that I have today's guest, who is none other than the legendary Dean Ornish, MD. He is founder and president of the nonprofit Preventive Medicine Research Institute, clinical professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco, and the author of six books, all national bestsellers. His new book, written with his wife, Anne, is Undo It, How Simple Lifestyle Changes Can Reverse Most Chronic Diseases. He has had every kind of award under the sun, including being recognized as a Time 100 Innovator, by Life Magazine as one of the 50 most influential members of his generation, and by Forbes as one of the world's seven most powerful teachers. Welcome, Dr. Dean Ornish. Thank you, Victoria. It's a pleasure to be on your show. It is such a pleasure to be talking with you. You have changed the world. You've changed the lives of so many people. 
And one of the things that still astounds me every time I think about it is that Medicare, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Medicaid as well, I believe, pays for heart disease patients to go through your program. And yet your program is so simple. Tell us about that. Well, where to begin? So as you indicated, for the last over 40 years, I've directed research showing that simple lifestyle changes, a whole foods plant-based diet that's low in fat and sugar, it's essentially a vegan diet, uh, moderate exercise, walking, say, a half an hour a day, uh, various stress management techniques, including meditation and yoga, and what we call psychosocial support, which is really love and intimacy, or to reduce it even further, to eat well, move more, stress less, and love more, can not only prevent, but actually reverse the progression of the most common chronic diseases. And I help create a field called lifestyle medicine, which is using lifestyle changes not only to help prevent disease, which we all know, but to treat and often even reverse it. And the more diseases we study and the more underlying biological mechanisms we look at, the more scientific evidence we have to show just how powerful these simple changes can be and how quickly people can get better. Uh, we showed, as you indicated for the first time, that heart disease could be reversed, type 2 diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, uh, early stage prostate cancer, changing gene expression, reversing aging by lengthening telomeres and so on. And we're now conducting the first randomized trial to see whether we can actually reverse the progression of early stage Alzheimer's disease. So through our nonprofit Preventive Medicine Research Institute, once we showed that these changes were working so well, we started training hospitals and clinics and physician groups around the country. And we trained over 50 hospitals and clinics. And we then as now we got bigger changes in lifestyle, better clinical outcomes, bigger cost savings and better adherence than anyone's ever shown. But a number of the sites closed down because we didn't have reimbursement and we didn't have Medicare and most insurance companies at that time. And so the painful lesson to me was it didn't matter how good it was clinically. If it wasn't reimbursable, it wasn't sustainable. And so that set me on a journey, uh, really the hardest thing I've ever done, believe it or not, to try to get um, insurance and Medicare reimbursement for our program because I knew that if we did thousands of studies with millions of patients, it would always remain a footnote unless we could always change, also change reimbursement. So we started with insurance companies, and Mutual of Omaha was the first major insurance company to cover our program, um, and that made the front page of the New York Times when that happened in the early 90s. Um, and, uh, and then Highmark Blue Cross Blue Shield began to cover it. But most of the insurance companies, you know, most people don't go into the insurance world because they're visionary and entrepreneurial. So I thought, well, if we could just get Medicare to pay for it, then most of the other insurance companies would follow suit. And so because I was working with Bill Clinton as one of his uh, consulting physicians and had worked to improve the menus at the White House and Camp David and Air Force One and the Navy Mess and so on. And then uh, when he'd have his annual physical every year, would come in for that at the Bethesda Naval Hospital. Um, I asked him if he would help. And he said yes. And I thought, well, that'll do it. You know, um, originally I met with um, a room full of people at Medicare and they said, oh, we can't pay for this. If we pay for this, then uh, no one will do it. And I brought with me the chief of cardiology from the first hospital that we trained in Omaha, where Mutual of Omaha was. And he said, look, I make my living putting stents and angioplasties, and 90% of the people were able to follow Dean's program well enough that they didn't need surgery and sat down. And then they said, well, if we pay for your program, everybody who's got a crystal ball and a pyramid is going to want to have medical coverage. And so I brought with me the chief medical officer of Mutual of Omaha, and he said, look, 
I'm the chief medical officer of Mutual of Omaha. Uh, you know, we're Mutual of Omaha. We're not exactly a radical insurance company, and we pay for Dean's program because it's got years of randomized controlled trial data showing it's safe and effective. And they, so they weren't going to do it. So it happened that night. I was having dinner with President Clinton at the White House, and he said, how was your day? And I said, it was really challenging. He said, well, maybe I can help. I said, well, maybe you can. You're the president of the United States. You're the head of the executive branch, which is where Medicare is. So I said, give me some stuff. So I had it with me, so I just gave it to him there. And I thought, you know, he'll make a phone call, and that'll be the end of it. Sixteen years later, we finally got Medicare coverage. Um, and uh, Newt Gingrich, when he was Speaker of the House, um, had a family member that benefited from our program. He became a, a strong advocate for it. So we have the President of the United States and the Speaker of the House from different political parties, ultimately 20 members of the Senate, 30 members of the House from the most conservative, the most liberal. And it still took 16 years. Um, and, you know, when you're trying to do something that's really challenging and, and disruptive, it's it's not always easy, but it was worth it because ultimately they did create a new benefit category called intensive cardiac rehabilitation. We've been partnering with uh, a company called ShareCare to train hospitals and clinics throughout the country. And now because it's reimbursable, it's sustainable. And so doctors and health professionals can make a living doing this. And so it's really creating a new paradigm of healthcare, uh, what I call lifestyle medicine, because now it's reimbursable, it's sustainable. And I didn't want this just to be concierge medicine for people who could pay out of pocket. I wanted this to, having seen what a powerful difference these lifestyle changes can make, I wanted it to be available to everyone, certainly to older people who now have uh, Medicare. And many of the other major insurance companies like Aetna and Anthem and Highmark and HMSA and other Blue Cross Blue Shield plans and so on are now covering the program. And so uh, we're really creating this new paradigm of healthcare rather than sick care. I love when you said that that'll do it. You thought just uh, get Bill Clinton in there and it'll happen in a few days. That was exactly how I felt when I read the preliminary findings of your study way back in the late 1980s. I remember standing in my living room in Kansas City thinking, well, we still have a ways to go to get people to stop wearing leather shoes, but the food part has been settled. <laughs> well, it's taken a while, but certainly it is... Uh, has grown so much and, and you're so much a part of that. So tell us a little bit about you. Did you just wake up one day being a cardiologist thinking, wow, yoga and a low-fat vegetarian diet, that should take care of everything? Well, I'm not a cardiologist. I'm an internist. Okay. Um, I, people often think I'm a cardiologist because our initial work was done in that area. Um, but uh, I went to medical school at Baylor College of Medicine. Uh, did my uh, medical residency and fellowship at Harvard and Mass General, and then I've been at UCSF since then. But I actually got interested in doing this when I was a freshman in college at Rice University in Houston and became suicidally and profoundly depressed. Uh, I had both this feeling like many kids do. My 18-year-old uh, son is just starting his first year in, uh, in college in, in New York. Um, this sense of the what's called the imposter syndrome. I felt like you know, now that I was with a bunch of really smart kids, it was just a matter of time before they realized what a big mistake the admissions committee had made in letting me in. But beyond that, I had this spiritual vision that was more than I could handle at the time, the sense that nothing can bring, this realization that nothing intrinsically can bring lasting happiness. And so the combination of feeling like I was never going to mount anything because I was stupid, and even if I did, it wouldn't matter anyway, was profoundly depressing. And I remember sitting in organic chemistry class just thinking, you know what, why don't I just kill myself, you know, and be done with it, you know, because dead people look like they're peaceful, and I certainly wasn't feeling that way, so why don't I just do that? It's like, why didn't I think, what a great idea, why didn't I think of that before? It's like, oh, well, because you're stupid, you know. And the worst thing about being that profoundly depressed is that it's, a, it's really a, uh, a reality dis distortion field. 
where excuse me a second let me turn this off um it's a it's a reality distortion feel where you feel like you're really seeing things clearly for the first time and that um every time you ever thought you'd be happy you were just fooling yourself uh and things are bad they'll always be bad and they, they've always been bad and that's really kind of the um, hallmark of depression, which is that sense of helplessness and hopelessness. And it really comes from that reality distortion that uh, you think you're seeing things clearly when you're really seeing things in a very distorted way. And so um, I was all ready to do myself in, but um, I uh, got so run down with this horrible case of infectious mononucleosis uh, that I uh, literally couldn't get out of bed. And so my parents got wind that all was not well with their older son. So I went home to Dallas and my plan was to get uh, well enough to kill myself. You know, if you could believe that, strong enough to kill myself. Uh, and uh, so I began um, making plans to do that. But my older sister, who had been a child of the 60, 60s um, and had uh, been helped a lot by this ecumenical spiritual teacher named Swami Satchidananda, um, my parents decided to have a cocktail party for the Swami. Um, and uh, back in today, that would be weird in Dallas, but back in 1972, it was really weird. And so there's an old saying that when the student is re ready, the teacher appears. And so uh, in walks this uh, central castings looking idea of a Swami with uh, um, long saffron robes and a long white beard. In fact, this being the 50th anniversary of Woodstock, he was the, the guy who opened Woodstock. So it was kind of, uh, there's been kind of a resurgence of interest in him recently. Um, and he gave a little talk in our living room, a satsang, and he started off by saying, nothing can bring you lasting happiness, which I'd already figured out, except I was about ready to do myself in, and he's glowing. It's like, what am I missing here? And he went on to say what really turned my life around, uh, which was that nothing can bring lasting happiness, but you actually, it's our nature to be happy and peaceful and, and, all, and usually healthy. And that not being mindful of that, we often run after all these things that we think are going to bring that to us, you know. If only I had more or whatever, then I'd be happy, then I'd be healthy, then people would love me, then I would feel so lonely and so on. Now, you can fill that blanket some, you know, with more money, more power, more sex, more beauty, more accomplishment, more and more whatever. But once you set up that view of the world, what I learned is that however it turns out, you generally feel bad. Until you get it, you're stressed. Wow, I have to get it. The stakes go up because it's not just winning or losing or whatever it is. It's being a winner or a loser. And you feel like winners are loved and losers are lonely. Uh, if someone else gets it, then you're really stressed. If you never get it, you're really stressed. And even if you get it, there's this moment, it's very seductive because in the moment it's like, ah, oh, I got it, now I'm happy. But it doesn't last in most cases. It's soon followed by either now what, it's never enough. One patient said, I can't even enjoy the view from the mountain I've climbed, I'm already looking over the next one. Or if it's not now what, it's often so what, big deal, it doesn't really provide that lasting sense of meaning. Another patient said, uh, the letdown that it comes from accomplishing a goal is so great, I always make sure I've got a dozen projects going at the same time. So we'd go back and say, well, this didn't do it, maybe that will. And so the cycle continues. And what I learned from the Swami was that, you know, he liked to make puns. People would say, what are you, a Hindu? He'd say, no, I'm an undo, which is part of where the title of my new book came from, Undo It. Um, and the idea is that it's our nature to be healthy and, and happy. And not being aware of that, we end up running after all these things. And what's perhaps the ultimate irony, we end up disturbing what we could have already if we just stop doing that. And so when you, after a meditation or a yoga class, or when you're feeling more peaceful, he would say it's important to remind yourself that the meditation didn't bring you that sense of peace. It's already there. What it did was to help you stop disturbing it, at least temporarily. 
Now, that may sound like a lot of, you know, parsing words and, and semantics, but it's profound. The implications are profound because if we get our happiness and our health from out there, then first of all, everyone who has what we think we need has power over us. But if it's from within us, then the question becomes not how can I get what I think I need to be happy and healthy, but rather how can I stop disturbing what I've already got? And that's something I can do something about. And not to blame myself, but to empower myself. Then I can really do something about that. And so when I start to feel you know, anxious or worried or something, then I say, what am I doing to, to, to cause that? And I can change that. And then the pain and the suffering becomes a reminder, a reminder. Uh, the, the suffering itself becomes the teacher that you know, I'm looking in the wrong place. And so um, I began to get, I said, well, you know, I can always kill myself. Let me move that down to plan B, you know, and so <laughs> let me, let me try this weird stuff. So he said, you know, and if you eat a, a plant-based diet, which I, you know, growing up in Texas was a huge change for me, um, and meditate and do yoga and exercise and love more, I, that'll do it. So I thought, okay, let me give that a try. And I began to get glimpses of what it felt like to be peaceful. And even though they weren't long, you know, just, it was enough to really turn my life around. So I went back to school, you know, before I couldn't literally read a headline on the newspaper and tell you five minutes later what it said, but I was able to function so much better because, you know, there's an old Zen proverb, before enlightenment, chop wood, carry water, after enlightenment, chop wood, carry water. In other words, you do the same actions, but your intention behind them is very different. And before it was, I have to do this so that I can be happy and people will love me and whatever. When I became more innerly defined, then I could actually paradoxically function at a much higher level because I didn't have all that stress and anxiety that went along with thinking I had to do all these things to be happy and healthy. It was more like, okay, that's my nature. I'm just doing these things because it's fun to be of service to the world. And the paradox was I ended up graduating first in my class, gave the baccalaureate, you know, all these great things, got into medical school, which would never have happened if I felt like I had to do those things. And so later when I went to medical school and began learning how to do heart surgery with Michael DeBakey, one of the pioneering surgeons who helped develop uh, bypass surgery, I mean, at first it was fun. And, you know, there's an Aztec priest quality to you know, opening someone's chest and exposing their beating heart and, and splicing a new uh, um, artery or, or vein around a blocked artery. But the problem is they would often go home, he would tell them they were cured, and more often than not, they would do the same things that had caused the problem in the first place, eat junk food, not manage stress, not exercise, and so on, smoke cigarettes. And often the bypasses would clog up and they would come back and we'd cut them open again, sometimes multiple times to bypass the bypass. So for me, bypass surgery became a metaphor of an incomplete approach. We were literally, as well as figuratively, bypassing the problem. So I wonder what would happen if we treated the cause. And whenever I lecture, I often show a cartoon I had drawn many years ago, back 40 years ago, of doctors busily mopping up the floor around a sink that's overflowing, but nobody's turning off the faucet. They're always treating the cause. And what I learned from the Swami was that if you can treat the cause, which are to a larger degree than we had once realized these are simple lifestyle choices that we make each day, that our bodies often have a remarkable capacity to begin healing and much more quickly than we had once realized if we can treat the cause. Otherwise, what happens, the bypasses clog up again. In many cases, the stents restenose. If you get put on drugs to lower your cholesterol, your blood pressure, your blood sugar, and you say, doctor, how long do I have to take these drugs? What does the doctor usually say? Forever, forever, right? Exactly. It's like, how long do I have to mop up the floor around the sink that's overflowing? Forever. Well, why don't we just treat the cause? Why don't we turn off the faucet? And so we find that under their doctor's supervision, most patients can reduce or often get off of many, if not all of these medications that they otherwise would have been taking for the rest of their life. They can avoid having, in most cases, these operations because they can actually reverse their 
heart disease. And then we found that these same lifestyle changes could reverse a number of other conditions. And so to answer your question, this really came out of my own suffering. And for me, what it taught me is that, you know, change is hard, but suffering can be a both a catalyst and a doorway for transforming our lives because it is hard uh, to change. But, you know, if you're in enough pain, it's kind of like, wow, this stuff is so weird, you know, meditation and vegan diet and exercise. Um, but, well, the studies show that it works, so let me try this weird stuff. That's part of the value of science and why I spend so much time doing scientific studies is that it can really help differentiate what works and what doesn't and can motivate many people to make changes that they might otherwise make. And then when they make these changes, because these underlying biological mechanisms are so dynamic, most people feel so much better so quickly it reframes the reason for making these changes from fear of dying to joy of living. And joy and pleasure and love and feeling good are really what's sustainable. For someone who's got such severe heart disease, they can't walk across the street without getting angina or chest pain, or they can't make love with their spouse or partner, they can't play with their kids, they can't go back to work, et cetera. And usually within a few weeks, most people are pain-free. Then they say things like, oh, they connect the dots between what they do and how they feel. It's like, oh, when I do this, I feel bad. My chest hurts. I can't do those things. When I do this, I feel good. So I'll do more of this and less of that. And then it comes out of their own experience, and that's what makes it sustainable. And again, not to live longer, because fear is really not a sustainable motivator. I think we're seeing this in the political arena now as well. But what's sustainable is joy and pleasure and love and feeling good and, and, and community. And when we work at that level, we find that people are much more likely to make and maintain lifestyle choices that are life-enhancing than ones that are self-destructive. Clearly, information's not enough or nobody would smoke. It's not like people say, hey, I didn't know it was bad for me. You know, It's on every pack of cigarettes. But you have to say, why do you smoke? You know, Why do you overeat? Why do you drink too much? Why do you abuse substances? Why do you do these things? And they'll say, because they help me deal with my loneliness and my isolation and my depression, the very things that got me interested in this you know, 40, 50 years ago now. Um, you know, that's the real epidemic, Victoria, is the sense of of, uh, of loneliness and, and depression and isolation and alienation, in part because, you know, we've had this radical shift in our culture in the last 50 years with the breakdown of the social networks that used to give people that sense of, of love and connection and community. I mean, 50 or 60 years ago, most people in this country had an extended family they saw regularly. They had a, a neighborhood with two or three generations of people that grew up together. They had a church or a synagogue or a mosque or a club they went to regularly. They had a you know, a job that felt secure that they'd been at for 10 years or more and got to know their coworkers. And many people today don't have any of those things. And what I find so interesting is that Study after study have shown that people who are lonely and depressed are three to 10 times more likely to get sick and die prematurely from virtually all causes when compared to those who have a sense of love and connection and community. In part, because you're more likely to abuse yourself. People say things like, I've got 20 friends in this pack of cigarettes and they're always there for me and nobody else is. You know, you're gonna take away my 20 friends, what are you gonna give me? Or food fills that void or fat coats my nerves and numbs the pain or alcohol or opioids. We have this opioid epidemic or will numb the pain or video games distract me from the pain or working all the time is a more socially acceptable way of distracting yourself. And what I learned from the Swami is, okay, well, what is the cause here? And so, what I learned is that when you grow up in a family with two or three generations of people living together, they really know you. They don't just know your Facebook profile or your bio sketch, you know. They know where you got busted or you got depressed or you were suicidal or you, uh, you know, went to drug rehab or you went bankrupt or whatever it is, you know, those are extreme examples. But they know all of you, not just, you know, your, your good side. And they're still there for you. 
And there's something really primal that we have as human beings about this need to be seen, you know, like in that wonderful uh, movie uh, that James Cameron did, Avatar, where it's I see you. You know, it's uh, really from an African proverb. I see all of you, not just your Facebook profile. In fact, one of the studies that I cite in our new book, uh, in the Undo It book, is the more time you spend on Facebook, the more depressed you are. Because it's not an authentic intimacy. You've got two and a half billion people, which shows how desperate people are for some sense of connection and community. But it's an, it's not an authentic intimacy because most people just post their best life. They show, oh, here I am in front of the Eiffel Tower and here I am, you know, doing something wonderful. And um, they don't post, you know, here I am alone in my room, you know, at three in the morning because I'm so... Uh, uh, just, you know, depressed and, and lonely, you know, and yet if you're an extended family, that's people know that about you. And so in our support groups, we're not just helping people stay on the diet or exercise. Um, we're creating a safe environment to kind of replicate that sense of where people can be let down their emotional defenses and just be open and authentic about what's really going on in their lives. And it's so incredibly meaningful for people that even the lifestyle heart trial which we finished, you know, in 1991, many of those people are still, you know, getting together on a regular basis. And they didn't even like each other that much when they first started, you know. So that's really what I find the most, it's really what I call a conspiracy of love in doing this work. Because one of the things I learned when I was so suicidally depressed is that, you know, telling somebody who's lonely and depressed that they're gonna live longer if they just eat healthier or whatever, I mean, a lot of people, certainly for me, it was like, you don't get it. I'm just trying to get through the day, you know. And, and, uh, and, and the other thing I've learned is that I could take all the meaning out of life when I was so depressed. You know, who cares? No, nothing matters. So what? Big deal, et cetera. But I also learned that you can put meaning back in. And one way to imbue our life choices with meaning is by choosing not to eat certain foods, for example, um, or to be in a monogamous relationship or whatever it happens to be. You know, you know, people say, oh, you're on a vegan diet or you're on a plant-based diet. Oh, that you must feel so deprived, you know, or you're in a monogamous relationship. That must be so deprived for you. And to me, what you gain is so much more than what you give up. Um, but more than that, you know, all spiritual traditions have dietary guidelines, most of them anyway. And they're, they often are in conflict with each other. One, you can eat this, but not that, or certain days of the week or certain days of the month or times of the year or whatever, um, or times of the day. Is God confused? I don't know, but I think what what I do know is that just the, act, <laughs> just the act of choosing not to eat certain foods imbues those choices with meaning. Or if you're in a monogamous sexual relationship, is that like the ball and chain? Well, it, it can be. Or it's like you can only be intimate to the degree you can let down your open your heart, which goes back to the title of the book I wanted to use, um, to 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 be to be emotionally vulnerable. In other words. And the more open you are, the more intimate you can be. And the more intimate you are, the more erotic it becomes. But you can't really be open and intimate unless you feel safe. Uh, and to the degree you feel safe, then you can be more vulnerable. Because otherwise, when you're more vulnerable, you can get hurt. But if you really are in a committed relationship and really trust the other person not to hurt you, then you can progressively open up more and more and more. And what my uh, wife Anne and I find is that rather than having the same kind of relationship with different people, we have these infinitely variable relations, uh, erotic experiences with each other that are unlike anything we've even imagined, much less experienced. And so again, what you gain is so much more than what you give up. It takes it out of the realm of a, a moral choice, but rather these are things that enable us to, um, to uh, live a, a most full and joyful life. Beautiful. I, I, uh, <laughs> I can eat this up, just like some of the amazing recipes in the back of your brand new book, Undo <laughs> It. We will be back right after this break with more of the legendary Dean Ornish, MD.
Discover the power within. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Welcome back to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. Welcome back, everybody. Isn't this just enchanting to have a whole hour with Dr. Dean Ornish and you don't even have to have anything wrong with you? What a world. (laughs) Jumping right back in, you've looked at several disease conditions and you've also looked at something which isn't a disease. It's actually a blessing and yet a lot of people regard it as something negative and that is growing older. And what telomeres have to do with that. Can you share some of that with us? Sure. Let me put that in the context of our new book, which is called Undo It. And, uh, you know, the undo button has always been my favorite key on the keyboard. I thought, wouldn't it be nice if we had an undo button in our lives? And uh, to a larger degree than we once realized, now we do. And so um, what this book is designed to do is to radically simplify the 40 years of work that I've done. Uh, My wife, Anne, and I, who've worked together now for 20 years, Um, realized that with all this interest in personalized medicine, it was the same lifestyle changes that could reverse a wide variety of chronic diseases. So these include uh, a whole foods, plant-based diet that's low in fat and low in sugar, moderate exercise like walking a half an hour a day, various stress management techniques, including meditation and yoga, and uh, love and intimacy and community, or to reduce it even further to eat well, move more, stress less, and love more. And the more diseases we study and the more mechanisms we look at, the more scientific evidence we have to show how powerful these simple changes can be. And one of the, um, I guess, misconceptions that I continually find is people think, oh, diet and lifestyle, that's kind of boring. How powerful could that be? You know, Well, pretty darn powerful, as it turns out. And I think our unique contribution has been to use these very high-tech, expensive, state-of-the-art scientific measures to prove how powerful these very simple and low-tech and low-cost and often ancient interventions can be. And so we showed for the first time that these same lifestyle changes could reverse uh, even severe heart disease, type 2 diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, uh, obesity. Uh, We did the first randomized trial showing that these same lifestyle changes could slow, stop, and even reverse the progression of men who had early-stage prostate cancer and likely women who have early-stage breast cancer. We did a study with uh, Elizabeth Blackburn about telomeres, which you asked me about a minute ago, which are the ends of our chromosomes that regulate aging. They're like the plastic tips on the ends of a shoelace to keep your shoelace from unraveling. They keep our DNA from unraveling. And as we get older and as the DNA replicates, the telomeres tend to get shorter. And as our telomeres get shorter, our lives tend to get shorter. And the risk of premature death from pretty much all causes goes up correspondingly. Uh, She had done some studies with Alyssa Apple showing that, for example, chronic emotional stress could shorten your telomeres. So we did the first study together, Dr. Blackburn and I, who got the Nobel Prize for her, her pioneering work on telomeres, that these same lifestyle changes could actually lengthen telomeres. It was the first study to show that any intervention could lengthen telomeres. And when we we published this in The Lancet, the premier international medical journal, the editor sent out a press release worldwide and they called it reversing aging at a cellular level. We published a study with Craig Venter, who was the first to, uh, uh, to decode the human genome. And we found that when you change your lifestyle, it changes your genes, turning on the good genes, turning off the bad genes, over 500 genes in just three months. And so, you know, when I was in medical school, we were taught 
oh, you know, the only way to change your genes is to get new parents, which of course you can't do. But our genes are not our fate. Our genes are generally a predisposition that if we make big enough uh, sufficient lifestyle changes, we can often turn on the good genes and turn off the bad genes. In fact, when President Clinton, um, his bypass was clogged up 10 years ago, his, one of his cardiologists uh, held a press conference on CNN and said, oh, it was all in his genes, his lifestyle had nothing to do with it. And so I sent an email to President Clinton, because I've been working with him for many years, saying it's, it's not all in your genes. And I say that not to blame you, but to empower you, because if it were all in your genes, you'd be a victim. You're not a victim. You're one of the most powerful guys in the world. And so that's when he began making these changes. And so in our new book, in the book Undo It, I present this unifying theory, this kind of radical unifying theory, radical in the sense that radical means to get to the root of something. And it goes something like this, that, you know, I was trained like all doctors to view heart disease and diabetes and prostate cancer and Alzheimer's disease as different diseases, uh, different diagnoses and different treatments. But when I realized that all these that these same lifestyle changes could reverse the progression of all of these different diseases that we've studied. Uh, and we're now in the middle of the first randomized trial to see if we can reverse early stage Alzheimer's disease. So we will, the jury's still out on that. We'll, we'll know more later. Um, I realized that the reason that these same lifestyle changes can affect all these different diseases is that all of these diseases share the same underlying biological mechanisms that are just expressed in different ways. Things like chronic inflammation, overstimulation of the sympathetic nervous system, changes in oxidative stress and the microbiome in telomeres and gene expression and angiogenesis and apoptosis and so on. And each one of these mechanisms in turn is directly influenced by what we eat, how we respond to stress, how much exercise we get and how much love and support we have. And again, the more diseases we study, the more evidence we have to show how powerful these changes are. So it radically simplifies you know, people are so confused, like, what should I eat? And, you know, who should I believe? And so on. And again, the, the, the value of science is to show that these things really work. And so it's not like there's one set of diet and lifestyle recommendations for reversing heart disease, another one for prostate cancer, reversing diabetes, whatever it happens to be. It's the same for all of them. Because again, they're really the same disease manifesting and masquerading in different forms. And that radically simplifies it. And, uh, you know, uh, the people who don't know anything about something can make it simple out of ignorance. And the people who really understand something, who spend their life doing it, hopefully, like like the work that we've done, can radically simplify it uh, down to its essence, which is really what this book does. No, it's absolutely what you've done. I love this. Eat well, move more, stress less, love more. And people can start where they are. Not everybody is an expert on a whole food plant-based diet the minute they buy your book, but it doesn't take long to get up to speed and just take that first step. So when we talk about these four things, to me, this is the essence of lifestyle medicine. And yet a lot of people confuse lifestyle medicine with something called functional medicine, which is very different. So people go to various physicians and they get confused. So what's the difference and how do people find a doctor? Well, I'm familiar with functional medicine because they gave me their highest award, their Linus Pauling Award, uh, several years ago. But I think the field kind of took a turn for uh, for the worse by um, embracing things like grass-fed beef and uh, organic chicken and saying that's really good for you and really putting so much emphasis on tests and supplements that cost thousands and thousands of dollars. Whereas what we're trying to do is to say, look, it's really not expensive to do this. You know, you know, a plant-based diet is the the way third world countries were eating before they could afford to eat meat and things like that. Uh, you know, walking 
You just need a pair of shoes, uh, meditation and yoga, yoga mat, and loving more doesn't cost anything. Uh, and that's why I spent 16 years to get Medicare to cover our program, is I wanted this to be available to people who could benefit from this, I, having seen what a powerful difference these changes can make. And so I, um, I, I love doing this work. You know, just as another example of how powerful these changes can be, we have several men and women who were, had such bad heart disease, they were told they needed a heart transplant and that the only thing that could save them would be to, to get a new heart. And uh, while waiting for a new heart, went through one of our nine-week lifestyle programs around the country. If you go to Ornish.com, they're all listed there. And improved so much in nine weeks, they didn't need a heart transplant anymore. So like, what's the more radical intervention here? You know, a heart transplant or eat well, move more, stress less, love more. And so I think that the biggest obstacle that many people face is to, to see that these very simple changes can make such a powerful and profound difference in their lives. And again, what's good for you is good for the planet. What's personally sustainable is globally sustainable. This, um, uh, there's a new film out called The Game Changers that, uh, that James Cameron, you know, did all those legendary films like Titanic and Avatar and Terminator and Luis Ayoyos, uh, who I think is the leading uh, documentary filmmaker in the world. He got an Academy Award for The Cove, his first documentary on the dolphin slaughter in Japan, uh, made this film called Game Changers along with James Wilkes and, and Joseph Pace and others to, to, to counter the most common misconceptions people have about eating a plant-based diet, which is you're a wimp and you don't get enough protein. And so he has all these elite athletes who raised their game and became Olympic medalists and mixed martial artists national champions and heavyweight boxing champions and NFL superstars and so on when they did this. Um, and and there's, uh, I think this is really going to wake a lot of people up to see that uh, and by the way, uh, you know, more it, it talks about how more global warming is caused by livestock consumption than all forms of transportation combined. That 78% of the arable land in the country is used for for livestock. You know, which um, um, besides all the suffering that it creates for them, creates a lot of suffering for us. You know, because um, it's it's uh, you know it's we need to get past this whole fat versus carbs debate. You know, the animal protein itself is inflammatory and has other uh, uh, problems in changing the, the nature of our microbiome and so on. So I would encourage you all to, to look for this film. It's called The Game Changers. It's really uh, very entertaining as well as really eye-opening. I think it's really going to change a lot of people's thinking about this. Oh, I think it will too. I'm so excited to see it. So I do want to ask you about a specific condition. I love how you're talking about, you know what, this lifestyle works for everything. And even this very bold uh, subtitle on Undo It, how simple lifestyle changes can reverse most chronic diseases. That's pretty powerful. But one that I have had so many listeners writing in about lately and wanting to get some information on is osteoporosis. Can you weigh in on that, please? Yeah, osteoporosis is uh, demineralization of your bones. And as people get older, their bones get so demineralized that sometimes they, you know, break a rib just by sneezing, for example. Um, and many people think that it's due to calcium deficiency, but it's really an imbalance between calcium intake and excretion. And so the question is not simply how can you get more calcium in your body, but how can you keep hold on to the calcium that you've got? And this is just another example of why animal protein is bad for you, because when you eat a lot of animal protein, when your body excretes the animal protein, the calcium often follows along with it. You know, in China, 50 or 60 years ago, when they ate predominantly a plant-based diet, they had, the rates of osteoporosis were extremely low, even though they were consuming less calcium than we do in this country. But because they were eating a plant-based diet, they held on to their calcium, and so their bones were much stronger. Also, exercise, particularly resistance training, makes your bones stronger as well. 
So if you're concerned about osteoporosis, the best thing you can do is to go on a, a whole foods plant-based diet and to exercise as well. So I know you're a physician, but you're also a writer and I'm a writer and I want to ask you as a writer, what it was like to do this book, what were your favorite parts, and mostly what was it like working side by side with your wife, Anne? Well, my wife and I uh, have been working together for over 20 years, and she's as, as brilliant as she is beautiful. Uh, and so, but I get most of the attention, so I really wanted to write this book with her in part so that people could understand just how amazing she really is. And also because, you know, the publisher wanted us to do it as kind of one voice, and we realized as we started to write it that it was much more interesting if we both had our yin and yang perspectives, you know, our male-female uh, perspectives. Uh, and I think it worked pretty well. And also, I was less concerned about what she'd write if it was clear that that was hers, and she was less concerned about what I would write if it was clear it was mine. And the first chapter we wrote was the the chapter on love more, and that was the only chapter we had a big fight about. And the ironic, the irony was not lost on us during that chapter. But again, it was because we realized that what we needed to do was to have our own voices, and that then after that it really became really a lot of fun. And I think it works to the and even on the uh, audiobook, we we both read our respective parts, which I think makes it a lot more interesting. But for example, she developed the whole learning management system that we use when we train hospitals and clinics and physician groups around our in our in the, around the country in our Medicare and insurance covered reversing heart disease program. Uh, it's brilliant. So it has all the PowerPoint slides, the the lecture notes, the videos, you know, the discussion things. All it's in a turnkey approach, and so. Um, you know, it's really wonderful since we both spent so much of our time working to be able to work with somebody um, in the same field for so long because you have so much shared experience. And, you know, when you when you come home together, it's not like, oh, tell me what your day was like. It's more like we're kind of reviewing what we've done together. Oh, that's beautiful. I worked with my daughter on my book, Main Street Vegan, and it was just a magical time. You know, Children, adult children are, are different from loving spouses. They go off and <laughs> do other things. But just to remember what it was like to spend that year getting her take, her young take, someone who lived this way her whole life, was, it was magnificent. And I, I get that energy from this book, which listeners, you know, I always want you to buy the books that I think are phenomenal. And this one, absolutely. And I'll just tell you that personally, I happen to own it in hardcover and on Audible. And it is wonderful on Audible with the two of you. So one of the things that you do early in, in the uh, book is do some myth busting. And one of the myths you tackle is the Mediterranean diet, which just seems like such a sweet, good diet. So tell us why it's a myth. Well, the Mediterranean diet is a better diet than what most people are eating, but it actually doesn't go far enough to reverse heart disease. It's a better diet, but I don't think it's an optimal diet, certainly not if you're trying to reverse a chronic disease. Um, and the study that most often is quoted is what was called the PREDIMED study, which was in the New England Journal of Medicine, uh, which they actually had to retract uh, and then republish a, a couple of years later. Uh, and they made this claim in the study that the Mediterranean diet was better than low-fat diet at preventing heart disease. And that made headlines around the world because it was in the New England Journal of Medicine. Well, it turns out that what they called the low-fat diet went from 39% to 37% fat, hardly a reduction at all, and certainly not very low in fat. They replaced fat with sugar, which is never a good idea. But even with all that, they actually found no difference in heart disease between the, the Mediterranean diet and the so-called low-fat diet. Um, what they found was that there was a much lower stroke rate 
in the Mediterranean diet because the omega-3 fatty acids that you find in, in, in salmon, for example, but you also find in, in algae, which is where the, 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 the fish get it from. They don't make the omega-3s. They just eat it in the salmon. So you can get plant-based omega-3s that work just as well. These omega-3s help to prevent blood from clotting. And 90% of blood clots, 90% of strokes are due to blood clots. And so that, you know, when they pooled the stroke data and the heart disease data, there was a reduction, but it was all driven by the reduction in strokes. When they looked at the heart disease data separately, there was no difference in that. And so the only diet that's actually been proven to reverse heart disease in people in randomized trials is the one that we've, that we've done. It's essentially a whole foods plant-based diet that's very low in fat and low in sugar. I love it when people say very truly that there's no drug, there's no surgery, and there's no other diet that has ever been shown to do this. So why is it not yet in every hospital? Why is, doesn't every physician recommend this to every patient? How long do we have to wait? Well, I'm on the nutrition committee of the American College of Cardiology, and we published a paper last year where we surveyed how much nutrition education do most doctors get in their medical training. So the average doctor gets four hours a year in medical school. And even then it's mostly on, you know, vitamin C and scurvy, you know, things like that. The average cardiologist in four years of fellowship gets a zero training in nutrition. And yet, so it's not surprising that most doctors don't recommend nutrition to their patients because we don't learn about that, nor is it reimbursed until that was part of the reason I spent 16 years to get Medicare uh, to pay for this because we doctors do what we get paid to do and we get trained to do. So if you're, if you're not trained to do it, if you're not paid to do it, then people don't do it. That's now beginning to change. And if you change reimbursement, it changes medical practice and even medical education, which is what we're seeing. It's a slow process, but you know, it's, it's working. And uh, there are a lot of interest, you know, there are a lot of powerful interests at stake here. You know, the pharmaceutical industry, Pfizer made $100 billion a year from selling Lipitor before it went uh, generic. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of, and you can, we, you know, we found an average 40% reduction in LDL cholesterol without drugs, which is what you get with the drugs, but without the costs and the only side effects are good ones. There's a huge amount with the food industry. And I think, uh, you know, the, the, uh, I, I worked with the CEO of McDonald's back in 1999 to get salads on the menu. And I took a lot of flack from a lot of people in the plant-based world, like I was going into the heart of darkness. And I said, look, they've got 43 million customers a day. And a lot of uh, lower socioeconomic areas only have, they have these food deserts. The only thing you can get is fast food. So at least if we get some salads on the menu, that even incremental change on that scale is worth doing. Uh, but the problem was, is, and the salads actually were quite good, but that because the... Um, the uh, the perverse subsidies in the agriculture bill, the salad was $5.95, the burger's 99 cents. So if you're on a fixed income, you get a lot more calories for your dollar by eating junk food. It's kind of like what smoking was. And so there's a lot of intentional misinformation out there that the food industry and the dairy industry have been funding to try to confuse people, much as, you know, 50 years ago, they would hire these people to so-called experts. You'd see ads like you know, smoking is good for you. More doctors smoke camels than any other cigarettes. And so I think we're going through something similar to that now. But I'm encouraged that things are changing because, you know, the randomized trials have shown clearly that in stable patients, stents and angioplasties don't prolong life, don't prevent heart attacks, don't even reduce angina. We spend billions and billions of dollars on these procedures that are dangerous, invasive, expensive, and largely ineffective. So I think uh, and 86% of the $3.6 trillion that we spent last year on healthcare is mostly for treating chronic diseases that can usually be often be prevented or even reversed through making these lifestyle changes. And so we can free up trillions of dollars for, to make better care available to people at, 
at, at lower costs. And again, the only side effects of this approach are, are good ones. Oh, now, drugs wonderful. and surgery can be life-saving in a crisis. I'm not saying that they're, they don't have a place. But for most chronic diseases, if we can use lifestyle changes, we can reduce the need for these medications to a large degree. So when you say most chronic diseases, I, I, we hear the heart disease, the diabetes, certain cancers. Give us kind of a range of what you're talking about. Or maybe it would be easier to just say, oh, if you've got X, Y, Z, do something different. Well, I mean, heart disease, type 2 diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, um, obesity, uh, uh, early stage prostate cancer, likely breast cancer, since the diseases are so similar, uh, many autoimmune diseases um, like rheumatoid arthritis, uh, lupus, and so on have a, a lifestyle component to them as well. Um, so I'm not saying that I, you, I want to make it clear to listeners, drugs and surgery have their place. They can be life-saving, particularly in a crisis. Uh, and so to me, the, the, the best approach is to work with your doctor to say, to go ahead and make these lifestyle changes, let your doctor monitor your progress. And so let's say you're taking cholesterol lowering drugs. It's very easy to check your cholesterol. And if you're, if you can get your cholesterol down low enough with, with your lifestyle changes or your blood pressure low enough with lifestyle changes, ask your doctor to reduce or even consider discontinuing some of these medications. Um, and so it's really to find the optimal approach for each person. Wonderful. I'm talking with Dr. Dean Ornish. You can find him at Ornish.com or on Facebook at Ornish. The brand new book is Undo It by Dean Ornish, MD, and Ann Ornish, How Simple Lifestyle Changes Can Reverse Most Chronic Diseases. So I know that now you are working on Alzheimer's, and I don't know if you're even allowed to talk about studies while they're going on. Is that like a courtroom trial going on? You can't talk about it. Or do you have any little secrets or little maybes that uh, would be fascinating? Well, I think we're at a place with Alzheimer's very similar to where we were with heart disease 40 years ago, that the mechanisms are very similar, uh, the underlying biological mechanisms. The studies, for example, the finger study and the pointer study and the mind study have shown that less intensive interventions can slow the rate of progression, much as it was 40 years ago, less intensive interventions can slow the rate of heart disease. We hope to show that a more intensive intervention might actually reverse it. So we can't talk about uh, what we're finding because we're in the middle of the study, but uh, that's what we're hoping that we can show. And if we do, it'll be a landmark study because there are, unlike heart disease, there are no highly effective drugs either for treating or for preventing it. And more people are afraid of Alzheimer's than any other disease because when you lose your memories, you lose everything. It'll be a trillion dollars a year before long as the population ages. My mom died of Alzheimer's, so I have the gene for it. So I have a particular personal interest in this. And so um, stay tuned. We, uh, we'll know more in a, in a year or so. Absolutely. So give us a vision, the future of, of medicine, healthcare in America, uh, 20 years from now. And by the way, if uh, listeners live in the San Francisco area and are we're still enrolling patients and are interested in our study, go to our website, ornish.com, and it'll talk about how you can uh, let us know that you're interested in enrolling. Uh, I do think that lifestyle medicine is the future of medicine because uh, we can't, it's, it's unaffordable otherwise. Uh, you know, the debate we're having in the presidential debates, I've been advising some of the presidential candidates, um, is more on how do you pay for these things? You know, is it Medicare for all? Is it more Affordable Care Act? Is it this or that? But to me, the more important question is, how can we really treat the cause? And if we know that most 
you know, it turns out that 5% of people account for up to 80% of all healthcare costs. These are the ones with chronic diseases. If we can prevent, reverse it, then we can prevent it. And then we can make better care available to more people at lower costs. Uh, and again, the only side effects of doing that, that, that approach are good ones. So you have accomplished a great deal in your life so far, <laughs> coming certainly from a young man who was looking at suicide. So uh, what dreams do you still have to come true? Well, I hope this Alzheimer's study works. Uh, I uh, love being a dad. I love being a husband uh, and a father. And, um, you know, I just look forward to continuing to evolve in my own personal life and to become a better example of what I uh, try to teach other people to do. Um, and I love doing this work. You know, how often in life do we get a chance to, to empower so many people with information that can transform both the length and the quality of their lives, you know? So that's what gets me out of bed every morning and brings meaning to my life. So just in our last couple of minutes, just tell us your day. I mean, you're very busy. Do you do all of these four suggestions from Undo It? Uh, I'm not perfect for sure, but, um, you know, I got up at five this morning and meditated for an hour. My, our little dog comes down and stares and sits next to me on, uh, when I meditate. Uh, we have this little ritual. I find if I do it in the morning, then it gets done. It kind of sets a nice tone for the rest of the day. I have breakfast with my family and generally uh, make it for them. Uh, go off to work and, uh, you know, have this interview. So my day's still ahead of me, but my day is totally variable. It can be from working on the Alzheimer's study to writing a journal article to consulting with patients to um, advising presidential candidates to uh, raising funds for, um, you know, the latest uh, new thing that we want to do to lecturing at conferences or grand rounds or um, you know, there's so many things. My, my life is, uh, it doesn't get boring very often. Well, and, and I think it does not get inconsequential very often either. It's wonderful that you have been doing such amazing work for so many years and that you keep doing it. So bless you in every way and your family you. and your book, everybody. We're going to make this book a New York Times bestseller if it's not already by the time you're hearing this. Thanks to Unity Online Radio for hosting this program. Thanks to you for listening. Be happy. Be healthy. Be blessed. Be vegan. <laughs> Thank you so much, Victoria. It's so great to see you again. Thank you for listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Hi, I'm Liz Winter, and I have been a medium and a spiritual development teacher for over 30 years. On my podcast, All Aboard the Medium Ship, I want to share the message with you that there is a wealth of love and comfort available to you from the spirit world. On my podcast, you can experience this comfort and peace for yourself through gentle guided meditations and helpful messages. Make sure you subscribe and follow so you never miss an episode. Part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network.